0: You are listening to the Sungrove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. Hey, do me a favor. I want you to take out of your program the outline for today. And if you have a Bible, you're going to open to Matthew chapter four, and we're going to kind of jump in to what God's word says. We're in a series right now called Circles, and we're going to talk about how does spiritual growth happen. And we don't want to just grow on our own. We want to grow in the context of other people, and we want every person as much as possible to be in a circle during the week because you're going to unpack further what we talk about here on the weekends. And so if you're joining us on online or you're in the loft or you're down here on the floor, we'd love for you to connect with a circle, another group of people. Some of them meet here at church on Wednesday night, some of them meet in homes, and uh, they're all over the place. You can look on the website and figure that out. But the last two weeks, we've looked at the issue of identity, and identity is who God says we are. This Jesus came up from his baptism. God spoke from heaven and said, you are my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. And then when you and I surrender our lives to Christ, what happens is we get the identity of Christ. We are one in Christ. He indwells us by his Holy Spirit. And so what happens is we now have that identity. God looks at you. If you've given and surrendered your life to Christ, God looks at you and says, you're my son or my daughter whom I love, with whom I'm well please. And we move from identity into some other phases of spiritual growth. And sometimes we get confused by that. We move from identity thinking, this is great. I'm adopted by God. I'm part of this forever family. This is awesome. And then we suddenly move into a season where we're tried and we're tested and we're tempted and we fall flat on our face and we make mistakes and we think maybe it didn't stick. Maybe I'm not who God says I am. And God allows you and I to go through formative experiences because it's there that we begin to cling deeply to him and find out that he is enough, that he is sufficient, and who he says is in fact who we are. But it's a place that a lot of us get confused, I don't know how many of you, when you get a different car, but how many of you actually open the glove box, you take out the owner's manual, and you actually read it? Anybody else in here uh, besides me actually read it? How many of you wait till you get a flat tire? Right? Or a fuse goes out, and you're like, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's what the owner's manual is there for, right? I'm one who likes to read the thing, and I think sometimes we approach Christianity that way. We're like, I don't know. I just need something. I got to find something here in God's word. I got to look around for it when you're in a your moment of need. I would suggest you read the whole thing. Because I think God tells his story of his redemption and love for people throughout the entire Bible. And then there are obviously those moments we go seeking him where we need something very particular. But there's a big difference, isn't there? Between just reading the owner's manual and actually driving a vehicle in different conditions. It's like when you go to take your driver's test and you you study and you do the information, you're full of information, but you don't really have any application yet. All you know is enough to do the written test so you can get your permit, then you can start to drive. And how many of you would remember the first time you drove in snow, right? First time you drove in snow, you've got some information. You probably read about it in your driving test, but it might've been years and you drive in snow and all of a sudden you've got information but you have the chance to apply it and it's there that you're tried and tested and tempted to do things and you may not drive so well and it may take some time before you gain some driving muscle and learn how to drive in different conditions. That's how you become experienced. It's how you grow as a driver. In the same way, God speaks his identity on you. He gives us the owner's manual and he basically says there are gonna be formative experiences that enter your life And those formative experiences are intended to cause you and me to grow and to find out that through those painful, difficult, confusing, impossible situation kind of scenarios, that we find out that God is still God and he is sufficient and that he still loves us even when we make mistakes. And that's what we move from, identity to formation. On your outline, you've got to fill in the blank. It says this, information... Plus, application equals transformation, right? You might be full of information from your driver's exam, but until you have the chance to apply it, like driving in the snow, you will not transform your ability. You will not grow as a driver until you're tested. Um, My wife taught our boys how to drive, and that's probably a good thing. She drives slower than I do, and so that's probably a good thing. She set the model, but when I got the boys one-on-one uh, in the car out here in the parking lot, I'm like, all right, so um, while you were learning to drive and your mom was teaching you, did she ever make you just slam on the brakes? And they're like, no, today's your day. So right out here in the parking lot, I'm like, we go, and so I'm like, drive fast, 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 okay, slam em! And like, they would be like, hmm, I'm like, no, no, no. I want to hear the clack, 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 of the anti-locks like pulling in, right? I, I want you to know because someday you're going to have to slam the brakes and you need to know what that's like when the car is stopping at a panicked pace, right? So then they drive and then they're all, you know, their adrenaline's all up because they just slammed the brakes and went like that and then they stop. We need to take information and apply it before we grow and get experience in those kind of areas. You know what's interesting? When people are asked why they don't believe in God, The number one answer is suffering. They just think, if there's a God, why is there suffering? It just doesn't make sense to people. But when you ask a Christian who's received Jesus as Lord, when did you grow most in your spiritual life? Number one answer is suffering. Same answer, two different perspectives. Why is that? Because seasons, like seasons of suffering, are seasons that are formative for us. They are formation experiences. My kids will ask me certain questions at different times, especially as they were growing up. And, you know, they've got hurts and habits and hang-ups just like I do. In fact, they would often ask me questions that regarded their hurts or habits and hang-ups. And guess what? Pretty much the same hurts and habits and hangups I have. And I've got a bunch of information up here, and I would kind of disseminate information to them. And what I would often find is that I could give a lot of information, but how often in my own life has that information been applied with application that has led to the kind of transformation I want? Sometimes it's been great and it was a formative experience, and I grew, and other times I'm still information. I'm still working through applying the information I know, and here's what I find often in a lot of times with people who believe in God, we are educated beyond our obedience. You and I are full of information. We have access to more information than any generation in the history of the world. My son Zachary goes to Denver Seminary, and he's getting a Master of Divinity degree, which is the same degree I have, and it's a graduate program and he's doing it online. That was never a possibility. I had to leave the beauty of California and go to Colorado and freeze every winter for a long time. But I also went, this'll date me, but I also went before the internet. I'm telling you, Zachary has access to more information than the school library had. And I would go to the school library and I didn't like studying the library, it was too quiet. I'm, I like activity and noise and people. And, and so I would Xerox literally hundreds of pages of commentaries and theological books, and I would just carry those back to my apartment so I could actually just study at my apartment where I could have like the baseball game on, and I could type my papers. And I could, But I'm telling you, like the access to information, even learning, while I'm watching Zachary learn Greek and he'll start taking Hebrew. As I'm watching that, I'm just going, the access to the information that they have, like my life would have been way easier if we had the internet but I'm just watching life transform. We have more information available right now than any other generation in the history of the world. And I would just suggest to you and me that we look at that information, we begin to say, God, okay, I have information, but I want to keep surrendering my life more and more to you, that God, you're going to give me formative experiences that are, difficult. They're brutal sometimes. But God, I'm going to be in those situations where I'm tried, and, and I'm hoping I'm making it. And I'm, I'm tested, and I'm hoping I pass the test. And, and God, I'm tempted, and sometimes I just fall the temptation. But God, you're going to pick me up, and you're going to l- help me learn through those to build spiritual muscle. And God understands what it's like for us to do that. So we get tried, we get tested, we get tempted, but how do we actually grow? How do we move from the information we may have to getting to the transformation we actually desire? How do you and I actually grow spiritually? How do we move from identity to formation to community and get on mission? How does that actually happen? Well, Jesus gets baptized, and as he's coming up out of the water, God says from heaven, this is my son, you are my son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. God is pleased with Jesus. He loves Jesus. And when you and I accept Christ, that same identity becomes ours. You, listen to me this morning. You are a son or daughter of the Most High God, whom He loves and with whom He is well pleased. And sometimes when we hear that, we begin to think of the ways that God shouldn't be pleased with us the ways we haven't grown, we have fallen, we haven't passed the test, we have been tempted and fallen down. And and yet, Jesus begins to model for us at the beginning of His work, He begins to model for us how spiritual growth actually happens. And so we see what happens right then in the book of Matthew chapter 1. Jesus gets baptized. Matthew, as he's describing what happens with Jesus, uses this next season in Jesus' life. And he introduces it by using the word then. Sometimes then is uncharted territory what is it that the ancient mariners used to like write on maps when they didn't know what was out there beyond you know what was known land or known areas as they would explore they would write on the maps when they didn't know what was then what was going to happen next they would write here be dragons (laughs) they just weren't sure what's out there and as jesus gets baptized comes up out of the water god speaks his identity from heaven Jesus is then moved by the Spirit out to the wilderness. was like a desert area, not like pine trees. And as he began to move out there, the devil, the dragon, was right there waiting for him. And we're going to begin to look at how Jesus handled trials and tests and temptations. In Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, it says, Then... Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes back Deuteronomy 8.3 to the devil. And then the devil took him to the holy city, so picture Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, the tallest place in Jerusalem, the skyscraper of Jerusalem in the known world, if you will, and he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and then Satan now quotes scripture. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He quotes Psalm 91, 11, and 12. But Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 13. And the scriptures say, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. I want you to catch a picture. Jesus gets baptized. The next introduction or the next phase of his development is started with the word then. Then the spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted. And it ends with the word then. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. And you begin to look at this and you're like, why, why would that happen? Why would the devil tempt Christ? And you need to realize that ultimately it's a last ditch effort by the devil to pervert the very nature of Christ's deity. If he can invalidate the identity that God just gave Jesus, then the devil's like, I'm going to win. If I can tempt him to get off mission, if I can tempt him to serve himself, if I can tempt him to not, you know, give into the, the things that are of heaven, but give into the things that are of the world, then he's going to win. More importantly, Satan is tempting Jesus to do the exact opposite of God become flesh who came as a suffering servant, one who's going to go through hardship and weakness and sacrifice himself for you and for me. That's what Satan doesn't want to happen. In fact, he's trying to tempt him to do the exact opposite of the road of suffering. And yet that's not always what God calls us to. Satan's attempting to steal worship for himself that really belongs to God, and I believe that he does that with you, and he does that with me. And let me tell you, Satan doesn't play fair. Satan's mean, Satan is cruel, and Satan will hit you like he doesn't just, you know, like step on your foot. What he does, he swipes your leg, and when you're down, he wants to stomp your head. He wants to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to devour you and your life and your spiritual progress. And so he comes along with Jesus and you say, well, why? Why would he do this? I mean, Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is not born of a human father and a human mother like you and me, thus inheriting a sin nature. Jesus is God become flesh, born of a human mother. He's the God-man, the only one that ever existed. Why would he try to tempt Jesus? Again, he's trying to invalidate the identity of God being God. And it's always Satan's agenda to steal worship that belongs to God and try to bring it to himself. And that's showing up in people all the time, isn't it? We try to steal the worship that belongs to God and we put it in temporary things. We put it in temporary ego. We begin to worship ourselves and our body and our look and our ego and all the things that we think will satisfy. Well, again, he doesn't want you and I to grow spiritually spiritually. Satan doesn't want you and I to live a life of affectionate worship of the Lord. He doesn't want you and I to build spiritual muscle. He wants us to flounder. And so we have this idea again, information plus application is what equals transformation. Pastor Alan Redpath said this, he said, quote, There is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. And if it has come that far, it has come with great purpose. See, we don't naturally give thanks to God for trials and tests and temptations, but rather we end up giving thanks for what the trials and the tests and the temptations ultimately produced in us, which is great purpose. Satan attempts to keep information. He's like, learn all you want. Learn all you want. I want you to be fully informed and I want you to do nothing. I want you to be educated beyond your obedience. I want you to have full of information, but don't dare apply it because it will lead to transformation. And he wants to keep information from being applied. He doesn't want you to be transformed because he's afraid of what God will do in you and through you. See, we want our families to be strengthened, but Satan does not. We want our past healed. Satan does not. We want our life to have meaning and significance. Satan does not. We want our relationships to have meaning and significance, but Satan does not. We want our work to matter, not just temporarily and earn a paycheck, but into eternity. Satan does not. We want our mission to reach the lost. Satan does not. We want our time, our treasure, our talents to last eternally. Satan does not. We want Sungrove Church to glorify God. Satan does not, but Jesus Christ does, and he is greater. As we looked at the scripture, when Satan came along with all his temptation, we saw firsthand that Jesus is greater. And let me tell you, when you get so concerned, when you see the suffering in the world and you point to that suffering and go, God, how can there be a God? Because I see all this suffering in the world. You need to be reminded that Jesus is greater, that Satan has temporary authority on the world. And so when you see suffering, when you see horrible things happening in the world, you don't point your finger at God, you point it at Satan and say, someday, someday. God will make all things new. Someday, God will make all things right. Thank God there's a God who loved us enough and came to earth and will set that which is wrong right someday. But what happens, the enemy loves to stir it up and then point the accusing finger and say, You see this suffering? Maybe there's not a God. But remember, he's the one who got defeated by God in 40 days in the wilderness. In the British Museum in London, there's an old Mariner's map. And on this map, at one point of the map, the cartographer began to write, here be giants, and another place, here be fiery scorpions. And at another point where the known world fell away, he wrote, here be dragons. But Sir John Franklin, a naval officer, an Arctic explorer, came into ownership of the map, and he scratched out these fearful inscriptions, and he wrote in large letters over those areas, here is God. See, he put faith out there to conquer fear. People without God, they don't know what to do. They just put fear. I don't know, there's dragons, there's fiery scorpions, there's dangerous things. And he say, God, God goes before me. God is behind me. God is with me. I understand who I am and I understand who's with me. So today, let me tell you why you need this sermon. You need to identify, as Jesus did, I think the reason we get a glimpse into all into three of the temptations that Jesus experienced is because Satan uses those same tactics with you and with me. So let me talk with you about three ways that Satan tries to stop spiritual progress in your life. Number one, on your outline, he appeals to the flesh, to your flesh. He tells Jesus, who's hungry, it's a good and an appropriate physical drive of the flesh. He tells him turn these rocks into bread. And so we're tempted when he does that with us to stop the good and serve ourselves. That's what happens. We want to stop the good. Satan wants us to stop doing good and to serve ourselves. And, and he comes along. He's like, Jesus, you're hungry. It's been 40 days. Good job. Good job. 40 days. That's right on. And he tells him, turn these rocks into bread. Now, how many of you in here know that Jesus can turn rocks into bread? You know that, right? Like he could do that if he wanted. He didn't need the encouragement from Satan. He can turn right, and I, I just want to let you know, he would turn him into like French bread. I'm pretty convinced he's hungry. He would make him like good bread, like the good stuff, right? But Satan comes along and just appeals to his flesh. Let's see, Jesus, the God-man, just how strong you think you are. Let's see if I can turn you from being the one who came to serve and ransom his life, uh, to to offer his life as a ransom for many, and see if you deserve yourself. And Jesus counters him. Satan points out to you and me that certain hungers of our flesh and certain desires we have, he wants to suggest to you that those override the need for a fully submitted life to God. So he's going to come along to you, and he's going to say, God wouldn't really give you those desires if he wanted you to say sexually pure. He would say, look at you, you're single or you're single again, or you're young and look at what everybody else is doing. And it seems okay. And he's going to say, you have natural fleshly desires. And he's going to say, those desires somehow override the need for a submitted life to God. For other people, they don't really care so much about that. But, but Satan will come to them and say, listen, why don't you enter this get rich quick scheme? And if you win, or if you get rich, just think about all the money you could give. And so greed and a quick fix instead of long-term saving, greed begins to capture the heart and people begin to love money instead of God. Other times they'll say to you, God, did God really say, give 10%? I mean, 10%? To God, like to honor him with the first of your income? I mean, and so you say, I I don't think I can believe that. And so what you do is you say, I'm gonna need to live on 100% and then that you find out that that's not enough because you're serving yourself instead of honoring God with the first and pretty soon you're living off 120% when you only make 100% and so debt becomes this weight around your neck and it begins to drown you. Did you ever notice that Satan takes dead things and offers them as life-giving things? Take this rock and turn it into bread. And he knows all the time it's a rock. That's what he does for you and me. Take this rock and tie it around yourself and then step out of the boat. That's what he wants you to do. And so what happens? For some people, one drink to relax turns into five drinks and drunkenness becomes a stone that's wrapped around your ankle and drowns you. For other people, sexual indulgence becomes a stone that's tied around your neck and it drowns you. And Jesus is the only one with the power to take spiritually dead things and make them life-giving. So let me just ask, as you've got your outline in front of you, maybe you want to write down where in your life what are the stones that are the weaknesses for you that appeal to your flesh that are potentially in danger of drowning you. You might want to write that down. You just say, for me, it's the area of pride. For me, it's the area of greed. For me, it's the area of I just want to do as I please. Whatever that is, you might want to write that down. So Satan appeals to our flesh. We're tempted to stop the good and serve ourselves. But second, we find out by the example of what he did to Jesus is that Satan appeals to position. To position. What's your status? What's your position? What's your identity? That's what he's going to do. He's going to challenge Oh, God says you're this? Let's challenge that and see if you'll prove it to me that you are what you say you are. I'm just gonna set you up to fail so that you'll think you're not who God says you are. So he comes to Jesus. He says, if you are the son of God, what does he just do? He just challenges identity. God just said, you are my son. What does Satan say first? If you're the son of God, oh, hello. He challenged identity. Throw yourself down. Satan, by the way, Quotes scripture. Does that surprise you? Satan is full of information. He knows it all, just didn't apply any of it. So, information has not led to application nor transformation in the life of Satan. In fact, Satan understands what the word is there, but wants to manipulate it and twist it and use it and redefine it and change it by one degree so that you and I follow through on our self seeking purposes. In fact, there's a lot of believers who will at times look through the scriptures just trying to find permission to do what you already want to do. You're looking for a verse to twist. You're looking for permission to try to just live life like everybody else says to live life. And maybe if you can get Jesus to sign off on it, you'll feel better about yourself. Listen, I got to believe that this is at the center of some health and wealth preaching. What I mean by health and wealth preaching is that they'll say that if you have enough faith, then you're going to be wealthy in this life. There are promises out there. All you got to do is name them. You need to claim them and they come to you and God wants you healthy and wealthy. And if you're not healthy and if you're not wealthy, then you simply don't have enough faith. What is that? It is using and manipulating the scriptures and twisting it by just one degree. Hey, think, well, what's one degree? I'll tell you what, if you're flying to the moon and you take off in a SpaceX rocket and the bottom of that rocket has engines that have gimbals on them, so as they begin to gimbal, what they do is they begin to calibrate so that the rocket goes straight. Well, if, you know, you're taking off and you're watching the, what the engines are doing and you're like, ah, oh, close enough. They're just off by one degree. And you're trying to get by the moon. Well, what's one degree after you travel hundreds of thousands of miles? You're going to entirely miss the moon. You're going straight out of the solar system somewhere. But it's just one degree. But that's what cults do. That's what religious abuse does. Instead of taking the whole counsel of God, and let me tell you, if, if you believe that God wants you simply healthy and wealthy, and you line up the life of Jesus who did not have a home or a place to live or a place to lay down his head and he walked as a suffering servant, if, you're, if you, this teaching doesn't line up to that experience, then there's something wrong with this teaching, isn't there? It's a degree off. So we need to know the counsel of God. And so Satan comes along, he twists scripture. Let me just find one little verse to help you live as you already please. He's gonna appeal to position so he's going to come along to you and he's going to say, you don't need to stand out in the world. You can actually love the world and love Jesus. And scripture tells us differently, but the enemy, he wants to teach you to love the world. And I got to tell you, if you're still looking for easy, which sometimes means lazy, right, in the Bible, you're not going to find it. What you're going to find is Jesus saying, Yoke yourself to me. Put that bar that you put on the cattle and yoke yourself to me. Attach yourself to me and you'll find out that I will walk you into significance. I will carry the heaviest burden. I will give you spiritual muscle and teach you how to do the work of the ministry. And there is heaven awaiting you. And so guess what? Your burden becomes easier and his way is lighter because you're attached to him. But just to be on cruise control, you won't find it in the Bible. Just to be lazy, honestly. Honestly. You won't find it in there. And I know some of you in this room you may have had a horrible religious experience. You had an abusive church. You had a painful church experience. You had an experience maybe with a cult. And maybe you're saying, listen, I, I didn't follow like Wicca. I didn't follow like witchcraft. I didn't follow Satanism. And you know, I wouldn't sit there and worship Satan like he's talking about here. Bow down and worship me. Uh, but maybe you followed something else. Or maybe you were in a painful experience, even in maybe a mainline church or a high culture church. And, and I just want to tell you something. The enemy wants to tell you that that painful experience is the picture of God. And it's not. Don't confuse a painful church experience with God, because the one is not the other. And God's gonna be who he reveals himself to be. And let me say, if you've experienced a painful church experience, I am so sorry. And they do hurt. And no church is perfect. And if it was, when you joined, you would make it unperfect. So let's just be honest, right? Regardless, the enemy wants to come along and whisper in your ear that painful experience that you had must be the picture of the church and the picture of God and what he intended. How could God let that happen to you? And I just want to say, do not allow that one experience to taint your picture of God because that is not the picture of the risen Christ. He loves you. Well, when Satan appeals to your position, which is your identity, you're tempted to defend your pride. That's what he's telling Jesus. Hey, I want you to defend your pride. Prove to me by jumping off the top of the temple that you are who you say, or in fact, you'll just fulfill scripture when you're doing it. And Jesus sees right through that ploy what happens to us is Satan will cause us to try to, we came to Christ, we're a new believer, we're trying to get this all figured out. We go through a season of formation, or maybe we've been a believer a long time, and now we're in a season of formation, and we have to choose, am I going to do it my way or God's way? And sometimes we find out, as much as I want to do it God's way, I actually just do it my way, and I fall down flat on my face, and the enemy wants to say, you got all puffed up, and now you failed, and now you're all deflated, and you must not be who God says you are. That's his intent. That's his intent. Let me get you to defend who you are, and you'll fail, and then I'll accuse you. So he tempts, 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 and he accuses, accuses, accuses. And that's where we capture those thoughts. We make them obedient to who Christ says we are. We fall to our knees. We admit once again our weakness to God. God, I'm just beginning again. And you may fail again. And God, I'm beginning again. And you may fail again. And God, I'm going to fall on my knee and begin again. Because God, I'm going to find out that I am weak. But in my weakness, you are still sufficient. And God's compassion is engaged in those moments when you do that. When you get down on your knees and God, like, hears you be honest instead of you, like, faking it, his compassion is engaged. And he's like, I run to you. And you will find out that I am sufficient. And who I say you are is who you are, even in formative experiences. So, third, Satan appeals to value. What do you value? What do you love? What do you want to worship? He takes Jesus up on a high mountain. And Satan, by the way, has been given authority over the kingdoms of the world. So when you see kingdom against kingdom and you see nation against nation and you see people against people, don't blame God. God will come and make all things right someday. But Satan has been given temporary authority reign and authority over the world. So here he is with this temporary authority. He pulls Jesus up on a high mountain and says, listen, let's just, let's streamline this thing. I will give you all this where I have temporary authority. I'll give that to you. If you will bow down and worship me. Do you see what he did there? He appealed to something Jesus might value. Didn't you come to save the world? Well, I'll give it all to you, but you got to bow down and compromise and worship me. The world is big enough, by the way, that there's always something for every person to worship. I don't know if you've figured that out by now. The world is big enough and creative enough and diverse enough that there is something that every single person can find, just find, to worship. There's plenty out there. And for some people, it's things, and for other people, it's stuff, and for other people, it's relationships, and other people, it's their bodies and how they look, and for other people, it's money. And so there's all sorts of things. It might even be a niche thing that you love a certain type of car. You love people who do the same kind of things that you do, and you might like adventure, sports, whatever it is. There's plenty out there in the world. There's never a shortage of things to worship, and the enemy will always come along and help people be more creative to say, you worship this, now gather around you. A bunch of other people who worship it too there's never a shortage of things to worship he's always trying to take the worship and adoration that belongs to god and getting it to spend it on ourselves and what we have and what we do so we're tempted to worship the world and hand satan the worship that belongs to god but jesus resisted that temptation out of his great love for us he said no i'll take the path of suffering i'll take the path of formation and I will do what is permanent. See, what happens to us is that we're tempted to place our value in things. So Satan tempts us appealing to value and we're tempted to place our value in things or people or relationships or stuff. A lot of years ago, I used to take students from Colorado where I was a youth pastor and we would get in a 15 pastor van and we would drive from Colorado to Los Angeles. And these are kids growing up in the suburbs of Colorado and we would drive into Beverly Hills. Okay, so we're driving down these streets that they can only imagine, because back then there was not an Instagram, and so they can only imagine these streets lined with palm trees. And on every side, there's a mansion. Like, and they're all different. They're all amazing. And so I drive, and they take their journals out, and I'd be like, all right, you guys pick out the house. D- decide which one would be your mansion. If you could choose any house, Decide which house. And they'd all be like, I want the white one. I want the one with the big pool. I want the one with the lawn. And they're, they're just all excited. It's like, they see the richest thing they've ever seen. And then we would just drive from Beverly Hills right down into South Central LA. And it is dangerous. Like when you park the van down there, they open the gate for you. You pull inside, they close the gate and they lock it. Everybody gets out of the van going quick. And we would go to a world vision school where they're reaching to children on the streets. And we would see the kind of work that they're doing there. And so they would see what riches look like and they'd see what the worst poverty in many cases in California can look like. And then we would go from there, we'd get back in the van, we'd drive to downtown LA, we'd pull into a parking garage, we'd go up the elevator because my dad's firm had two whole floors in the skyscraper downtown LA. And I would reserve this legal conference room and the windows see this amazing view and there's like this bench that's by the windows where you can like sit on it and you kind of lean up against the windows and all the kids sit up there and they're looking out on the windows and they see like these little cars driving around the freeways because we're so high in the air, and they can just see all over. They're looking like, over there is a Hollywood sign. Like, I can see it. And then they're looking out that way, and they're going way on the horizon. I can see where, like, the airliners come in and land at LAX. And then they're looking to the left, and they going the beach. Like, I can see it from here. Like, we're not close, really, to the beach, but you can see it from there. And you're just seeing all the kingdoms of the world, all the splendor of Los Angeles, and they're in a downtown skyscraper. And they're looking out, and we would turn to this passage. Say, students, you have your whole future ahead of you. And Satan would love to bring you on top of a mountain and say, All this, all of this I will give you if you will just bow your knee and worship me. And you've got your future ahead of you. What are you going to choose? You've seen the riches today, you've seen poverty. God's probably going to bring you somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. But do you want to live a life for significance? Or do you wanna live a life where rocks are offered, promised to be bread, but in the end they don't satisfy? With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just by a show of hands, how many of you in this room would say, you know what, that's me, that's me. I often am distracted from who God really is, and my affection gets attached to things other than God. Maybe you're saying, that's me right now. Would you show of hands? How many of you just say that? That's me, man. My, I just get so easily distracted. My affections get attached to other things. Thank you for your honesty. And maybe there's some of you here today, you're saying, listen, I have never received Jesus as Lord. I didn't know I could receive forgiveness of sins. And if that's you today, then you pray a prayer like this, right where you're seated, just after me in your heart, God hears you. He takes dead things and dead people and dead on the inside people and he brings them to life. But it's only through belief in what he did on the cross. If that's you, you pray a prayer like this, right where you're seated, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life because you're God. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. Would you wash me as white as snow? Would you make me a new creation on the inside? Because today, Jesus, I give you me. And right now, anywhere around the room, if you prayed that prayer, will you raise your hand? Awesome, in the back, I see you right there, anywhere else. Just hold your hand right here on the edge. Awesome. Greatest decision you could ever make. You might be up in the loft. You might be watching online. My friends in the loft will see you. Just raise your hand up as a way of just knowing that you made that decision. Awesome. great decision back there at the tables. So good. God, I want to thank you for what you're doing in and through us. And just today, God, today, we turn our affections back to you. We claim that we are who you say we are. And we say, God, would you continue to use our formative experiences to help us find out that our identity has not changed and that you are sufficient in our suffering. We pray this. If you agree with that, would you say, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.